Okay, episode five, the bureaucracies of East Asia. So uh, this is going to be a bit of a inversion of the normal format where Dave tells the stories and I um, jump in once in a while. Uh, I'm going to be uh, mostly carrying this one. Um, and it's based on a book uh, by uh, a historian, Alexander Woodside, who um, taught at the University of British Columbia is actually Canadian. Uh, and um, the book is called Lost Modernities. And it's about um, China, Korea, and Vietnam. And it's about the the conception of governance, the, the bureaucracy of education and of testing. Um, because all, all of these, um, how all of these elements came together in the Mandarin kind of system of government that evolved in China and was used in Korea and Vietnam for many centuries. So um, as part of this uh, system, and it's a whole system of thought and a, a way of governing, there are all kinds of debates that were anticipated that are only kind of being repeated today um, and all over the world. But um they they did they were anticipated hundreds of years ago. So let me just let let me just get into it here. Um, so the several critiques um, of these systems were made in ter- just to just to say what is a what is a Mandarin system? Uh, there's a Mandarin exam. So there's like a centrally administered examination system uh, in you know going back to ancient times, but like. Uh, mid- you might call medieval times, like 7th, 8th century. Uh, and everybody would, the Mandarin exams, anybody could take the exam. And then based on your score in the exam, you're allotted a job with the government. So you're pretty much like set for life um, if you pass the exam. But the passing mark is incredibly high and um, anybody and everybody can take the exam. So it's this... Uh, idea that it's a meritocracy. And I know, Dave, uh, before maybe before I launch in, I know you sent me, I think, an interesting article about meritocracy. And I've been reading kind of anti-meritocracy arguments that I've found really convincing. <laughs> Actually, I was um, going to say first, did you know some of the criteria for the exam, the Mandarin exam? I mean, like criteria in the sense of like the eight paragraph essay or those kinds of things? or. <laughs> Yeah, I don't, I don't know what form the exam took. I just knew some of the rules around it. You're right. It was open to anyone. Um, I'm not 100% sure, but I thought I read somewhere that they had all day to write it. Yeah, yeah. They had all day. There's no, like, cheating is not, doesn't really work the way that. No, they think. could bring anything with them that they wanted. You can bring books. I mean, whether you yeah. brought the right ones or not would be an issue but you could bring an abacus you could bring books and i believe they could talk during the exam so Mm -hmm. you there are families that take the exam together so like you go with your uncles and your your dad and your (laughs) your brothers and you all take the test yeah yeah but they could also talk to other people so you can cheat you just have to know who to cheat off yeah which yeah which is valuable skill probably a valuable skill exactly um so uh, yeah, so there that and that the grading infrastructure for the tests is also super interesting. They they went out of their way to not just to um, 
to create the appearance of fairness, but like the the people grading the exams did not know who the students were. And that was like really, really securely um, kept, kept secret. And it would go through like from one examiner to another uh, without ever revealing who the student was. And that was to try to prevent nepotism, to try to prevent um, all of those, any any impediment to the idea that the person who got the best mark gets the job, right? So um, there are, there's a critique from the 17th century from one of these bureaucrats named Lu Shiyi, who argues that there are problems inherent in both feudal and bureaucratic systems. So the, this is, it's important also to, to note that like the bureaucracy of the mandarins, the alternative to this is the feudalism that we've described in a previous episode where the king has the right, the note, he assigns land and taxing rights and everything to nobles who also have rights over peasants. Um, but in the bureaucratic system, there's a relationship between the emperor and his bureaucrats and um, their, uh, they're the ones who administer. So bureaucracies, Lu Xi argued, their 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 military power declines over time compared to feudalism, and they also proliferate. So that's something that critics of bureaucracy in the West have noted: is the law of bureaucracy is that bureaucracies keep growing to justify their own existence, right? Um, there was grade inflation anxiety. <laughs> so uh, again, a, a current debate in 18th century or, or critique named Pak Chega uh, in Korea said that exams produced more officials than were needed. In the 1700s, there was a scandal in Vietnam where access to exams was sold and there were stampedes and fights to enter the sites. There's also a critique that competitive examinations lead to superficial and calculating behavior. Um, uh, there was, um, oh, okay. And there, there's another, um, there's another separate stream of critique of the exams, which is that exams separate, like a, a system based on testing separates practical knowledge from written knowledge. Uh, and so that critique was, brought up again in the 1990s uh, when Chinese um, reformers criticized the adoption of Western economics because they said, well, these economic models are entirely abstract and they have very little that's practical in them. And so it's interesting that they you can go back and find these kinds of debates in uh, hundreds of year old um, discussions. Um, so we were talking about how you prepare for these exams. So there were lots, there were many, many academies in Korea, um, not, not as much so in Vietnam or China, where I think, as you were, you were saying just before we started recording, Dave, that... Yeah, the in practice North in China, as far as I know, was that you hired your own tutors. Yeah. So again, if you choose the right teachers, your preparation will be better. Of course, hiring your own tutors gives you a huge clue as to the, the bias that's built into this system. It's really not open to the poor. Yeah, it, it's, it's the superficially kind of open. Yeah. And Anybody that, can that's also... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say that's also analogous to our system today, right? Like anytime people talk about meritocracy today, 
they're basing it on the idea that you know we have a free it's a free country you know you can do what you want uh if you don't have the credentials you go get them you know if you don't have the skills you go and learn them you go online and you <laughs> you do coursera or whatever and you learn how to become a computer programmer if you can't do that yeah then too bad for you right but yeah, and that's assuming that your degree from appalachia state is as good as a degree from harvard yeah, and, and assuming your internet access, uh, your nutrition, your abusive home, your you know, in, your inability to pay potentially rent, um, the lead in your drinking water, you know, there's just there's a lot of a lot of things that are invisible when you when you talk about a level playing field. Well, I, re I remember reading some some things that the poor could do and occasionally did do in order to succeed. One one method was the uh, the village lottery. So every family contributes to a pool, and basically they they choose one way or another the smartest boy in the village, and then everybody gives that kid enough money to hire a tutor and get an education. And the assumption is that if that kid makes it to Mandarin, well, once he's in a position of power, you know, the village has it has it made. Yeah. Um, or another method was simply the the generational one, and that is that you save for generations. Mm -hmm. As in, I can't send my son to get an education, but if I start saving now, my great great grandson can make it. And in a society Which, that reveres yeah. their ancestors, you can see how that could work. And a society that takes the long view, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, <laughs> so, um, in the, the the this meritocratic system uh, coexists all all the time with feudal elements. So there's always an emperor the whole time. There's also a, a nobility. There's an inherited nobility um, in all these countries. Um, there's the government is all three by the 15th century vietnam china and korea have six ministries personnel and appointments finance and taxes rights and education war justice and punishment and public works so these come from an ancient text uh, called the rituals of Zhao. um so the these texts uh and the the pedagogy of the tests um emphasizes factual narrative history and moral lessons right like people who have may have even superficial knowledge of confucius it's like confucius says x right so confucius is walking with his buddy his buddy asks him some question and then confucius takes him through the argument that's the basic um genre of confucius's moral lessons sounds very socratic <laughs> yeah yeah well yeah exactly which is which is also the uh my whole part of my point here is that this is all these are all, all better understood as eurasian <laughs> discussions than as properly european or, or asian discussions um so some people woodside asks like why um why why does this system arise is it like basically a form of intent uh, a form of tyranny like the king using a a test-based bureaucracy as a tool to disempower the nobility, um, the desire of the Tang dynasty at the time, which was the first one to assert power at the expense of local aristocrats. And Woodside says, well, maybe, but 
Um, most of the time, the solution for this problem of local aristocrats that are overpowered is to create more nobles. Um, but that also creates uh, contradictions of its own, right? There, are, I guess there are lots of cases in Europe where the no- monarch creates new nobles to try to undermine the previous nobles. Yeah, and like those intendants that we were speaking about uh, in the episode about absolutism. So at first, you reward them simply with a, a position, a little bit of status, uh, money. But eventually, the king started making them nobles. Yeah. And they're nobles of the robe rather than the sword. So now you've got two classes of nobility. Uh, the old nobility obviously hates the newcomers and tries to uh, you know, snob them or turn up their nose at them. But eventually, the, the two groups are both going to have similar interests. So the more nobles you create, you're just postponing your problem. So there's a iron law of bureaucracy that they say that that bureaucrats tend to proliferate, but there's probably some, a, an equivalent note with nobility where it, the number of um, <laughs> the number of nouveau riche families that are hereditary that are, feel entitled her, on a her, hereditary basis to a giant share of society's pie also probably grows very slowly over time. Um, the, so there's an analogy made to Athens. It's a, you just mentioned Socrates, but like Athens, this Woodside again argues that Athens created this democracy um, at the time of Socrates and maybe I think a little bit before because they needed a higher amount of consent from the people for their imp- imperial ambitions. So maybe China they argue, is similar, where China, because it was expanding and unifying on a scale that was way bigger than anything that was going on in Europe, needed more consent and more organization to run this giant uh, polity. Purely hereditary power can't work at this scale. But that doesn't explain Korea and Vietnam. But then Korea and Vietnam were in such proximity to China, and they needed to deal with China. So they probably needed equivalently um, strong systems, however, um, bureaucracies. So by the second half of the 12th century, bureaucrats also faced rating systems. So they were rated based on their performance. Um, they Fighting over being rated was another uh, issue. I think, <laughs> I think of that with professors, you know, um, but not just professors. I'm sure anybody, anybody in any kind of bureaucratic job where you have performance review, it's just like, oh god, performance <laughs> review, really. <laughs> but the metric they had was interesting in Vietnam. In this Vietnamese case, one of the metrics was how many peasants are fleeing your jurisdiction for uh, for other jurisdictions. That's a great way to measure. <laughs> yeah, like it's it's again. I I think of like professor, like your student. Uh, your student, what is it called? Student satisfaction or like student, <laughs> student, oh man, what do they call it? Student evaluations, I guess they're called. Yeah. Um, but then your drop rate. <laughs> I was in a class once that started with 15 and there were three students by the end. And I got a B plus and uh, I was like kind of sad about it. And then I realized it was the highest mark in the class out of three. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> but you know that this that's another thing about this system right like uh it really the people who 
who become the government are the people who, you know, follow the rules, do well in school. Um, and those people are useful in many situations and useless in other situations. And I think the... Well, it's certainly an argument yeah. for um, keeping the standards high. I mean, if, if the uh, mark you need to succeed on the exam is in the, you know, 90 to 100% range, think about a, a provincial governor who's got a flood, okay? How many of the peasants did you save? What's a passing mark for, you know, saving your mm -hmm. people from the flood? 50%? Right. Yeah, that's true. If he's if he's conditioned to think that only only a 99% is, is good enough, that's exactly what you want. That's exactly what you want at that moment. Um, so there was a there was a Tang Dynasty official who worried that um, by promoting people based on exams, you're encouraging people to fake virtues on the exam and uh, and rely on text rather than behavior. So. Again, you know, when you're applying to a to a job, I guess this is where the references come in, right? You're not just rated on your SAT or your LSAT or your MCAT score, but also, you know, your your character. Um, so that's one way that we we've tried to resolve that problem. Um, there was in Korea in 1811 and in Vietnam in 1854, uh, and the the self-declared heavenly king in China, Taiping heavenly king. All of these rebels were people who failed exams. <laughs> um, so the, the I, one one bureaucrat said the problem is when you study history and politics for the exam, you learn about the rebels that overturned previous systems. <laughs> So, so first of all, you write the you're studying for the exam. You learn about all these rebels that that overthrew the system and became emperor themselves. Then you fail the exam, so you don't get a job. Uh, it seems like the only logical thing to do is is become a warlord. Um, so going to Europe, Pascal, who I'm sure we'll talk about when we talk about science and philosophy in a future episode, he actually argued that in the 1600s that meritocracy would be guaranteed to produce civil war because everybody thinks they have merit, um, whereas in aristocracy, uh, people know they're people know they're not born part of the nobility. Yeah, so maybe a, a good moment to mention that uh, article we both read about meritocracy and how dangerous it is to believe in it so the first yeah. the first question would be who decides what merit is and then yeah in any society it's going to be the ruling class that decides what it is that's meritorious and for whom yeah in the, in the united states right now it seems that merit is closely identified with wealth yeah if you're so smart why aren't you rich Right. <clears throat> but there's also uh, the question of who is going to identify those people who have merit. And then you get, well, what we've experienced with um, equal opportunity legislation. I mean, the whole idea is to give access to groups who have been traditionally um, disenfranchised or, or kept out of positions of privilege either because of their gender or their religion or their color and things like that. Well, who's in charge of picking the best candidates for whatever the position is? If it's a white 
male, chances are he's going to choose other white males because they have the most merit. Yeah. And they may believe that they're being perfectly honest in their judgment. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a problem. The other, the other problem, there's a, there's a book I read a while ago by, uh, he's, I think he's just a writer. I think he's like an independently wealthy writer. So take that for what it is, but his name is Alain de Botton and he's English, I think, even though he has a French name, but he wrote a book called status anxiety, I think. And his whole thing is like, you feel bad. Um, you feel worse when you don't succeed in a meritocracy because the mythology is you should be able to succeed through your own efforts. Whereas if you're a born peasant in an aristocracy, you know you're not going to become <laughs> king. Right. So you're not, you're not going to feel bad when you don't become king. But if you're like poor and you can't make rent, society is telling you that that's all your fault, right? You're a, you failure, have, yeah. you're, you're a loser. Um, and that's... Uh, that's what makes and and in fact you know probably at a, at any given time like we're not necessary things are not necessarily you're not more upwardly mobile from the very bottom of any of these highly unequal societies including today than you were in an aristocracy like if you're born if your family income is like $15,000 a year in Canada or the States, you're not going to be Bill Gates. Like that's not going to happen for you. And you right. should not feel bad if that doesn't happen for you. Yeah. Um, and yet you keep hearing the expression, the level playing field, which yeah. just doesn't exist. So there were some uh, efforts towards leveling the playing field for tests uh, in the eight seventeen and 1800s in Vietnam, um, ethnic minority uh populations, I guess, were given privileged admission to prep schools uh, to prepare for the tests. In 1777, Beijing gave students from the border areas 30 years um, extra to study for the poetry exams. Now, I would be pretty uh, worried if someone said you have an extra 30 years to study for a test because um, that would probably mean there was no way you could pass it's oh, like um i'm not yeah, sure about that i i've heard that that many of the mandarins took decades to finally succeed at the exams they were that hard even with the best education and even with the brightest students there aren't too many 22 year old mandarins running around so you fail many times before oh, you pass yeah. it oh yeah i think so but the uh, case you just mentioned about giving you know border students extra years that's absolutely marvelous. I wish we could do that now. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have yeah, we have yeah. standardized tests in Ontario. The literacy exam is is absolutely awful. You're uh, you're giving an English exam and you're expecting everyone to take it, including people who've been in the country a year or two. Everybody knows it takes four or five years to become moderately fluent in the language. Yeah. And you sit these students down and you give them a story which is in English, that's fair, but the cultural biases are so built in. Imagine a story about the Arctic uh, right. where um, someone is traveling by dog sled and then they have to break out the snowshoes 
and then give that passage to somebody who came from Syria last year. Right. What hope right. do they have of understanding what the yeah. hell you're talking about? Yeah. I remember an IQ test question involving like getting on a sailboat <laughs> and sailing from one part of, you know, from one port to another. And it's like, you know, not sure how, how much sailing experience uh, your student in an inner city is going to have. Yeah. So when, when you have a system that's based on pr the production of words and texts, that actually becomes what you fear. Um, so there's a, there's a thing where, you know, in feudalism, they live in fear of the mob, right? You, we talked about feudal Russia and how there were peasant revolts every few weeks or days or whatever. Um, the Mandarin, it's they feared, um, they feared bur other bureaucratic factions. And so um, the, in, in ancient Korea, there were these literary cliques uh, and the literary clique that, it, that got really good at specific kinds of debates to convince the emperor ended up with genuine political power. Um, there's a critic, Yu Su Wan, who says that the censors captured the Korean government, and that this is around the eight, early 18th century. There is a quote, their literary skill, their aptitude for collecting opinions and their collusion with other officials had been their weapons. Um, yeah, so. you were talking about the proliferation of the bureaucracy. So if you are uh, a high-ranking Mandarin, you want to extend your influence, and that would mean getting... Uh, people who, well, you're their patron, so you provide them with uh, a high-ranking position. So if you can create new departments and staff them with people that you've chosen and who now owe you, you can really extend your influence, uh, I guess, in a horizontal way. But you can also do it vertically, and that would be by catching the ear of, well, the emperor, obviously, but, um, you know, other high-ranking officials so you really get uh, scholars slash courtiers. Yeah, and building building your own little empire. So yeah. David David Graeber has this pretty cool book from a couple of years ago. He's an anarchist. Um, he's an anarchist professor, I guess. Uh, he 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 lives in the UK. He's from the states, uh, and he has a book called Bullshit Jobs. <laughs> so. <laughs> The definition of a bullshit job is a job where you, the person doing the job, knows that if the job were to cease to exist, it would make absolutely no difference in the world. Um, and he, he did an informal survey of it by asking his contact list whether they thought they were in a bullshit job or not. And it kind of snowballed and he got thousands of answers and something, some it was double digits. It was like 30 or 40% of the people that answered thought they were in bullshit jobs. And so he, he did this typology of like, what are the different categories of bullshit jobs? And one of them was basically like your job exists to make your superior important. So it's like the more underlings you have, the more important you are and you can demonstrate your importance to the person, the next level up. So if you have a bunch of underlings, it doesn't really matter whether they're doing anything meaningful um, at all. Uh, your their very existence is a demonstration that you are an important bureaucrat. 
and there were critics of that uh, aspect of the bureaucracy throughout this period in East Asia as well. Um, the Japanese who didn't adopt this system, right? So, so when Koreans went or Chinese went to Japan, uh, they would find it really disorganized, very feudal. Um, they didn't understand how the Japanese could live that way in such a disorganized way. Um, the Japanese thought that the bureaucracies and the testing system sanctioned selfishness and disloyalty, um, that they were... Um, they were basically encouraging people to be kind of clever, right? As opposed to being loyal to their feudal lord. Um, there were, however, I think there were really interesting things that came out of it. Um, there, This author, uh, Alexander Woodside, he calls it a tension between realist and salvationist views of the state. So in the some of these more salvationist oriented bureaucrats would think of like granaries for famine relief right like the idea of a welfare state like you have this responsibility to the villagers in your um in your jurisdiction and uh, even though um welfare states are thought of as like a post-industrial you know you have we have all this extra productivity because of the industrial um, system and so we develop these welfare states. Uh, Woodside argues that no, you you don't actually need to produce this huge amount of surplus. It's not it's not the wealth of the society that determines whether you have a welfare state because it's it's um, something that arises when resources are scarce too in these bureaucracies. Um, so tax so there's a ten, there's tensions over taxes though because of these welfare state um issues and and that somebody has to pay for them and there's like bureaucrats that say you have to have low taxes and then there's bureaucrats that say no we need more taxes so that we can do more things um and so that becomes a constant bone of contention uh where the heavier the tax burden the more um the more the bigger the footprint of the state, and sometimes uh, they end up generating a lot of resentment from the peasants who have to pay for this. And the peasants, <laughs> there's a whole. Here's another uh, common theme with I think bureaucracies is like, why are the people at the bottom so unenthusiastic about our programs? And then you think of like a show like The Office where they try to get. Um, they low-level office workers to kind of sacrifice their dignity at these at these office morale events, and so um, <laughs> yeah, the, the solution for the mandarins was these village covenants. So they they wanted to inculcate commitments to good behavior in their villagers by leading them in a series. Here's a quote um, of the Jiangxi Covenant of 1520. You would lead them in a series of chorused oral declarations and choreographed questions and answers accompanied by drum beatings and wine pourings. And uh, if, you think, if you think that sounds strange, I mean, that is more or less what was going on in church at the same time, right? In, in Europe. Actually, it sounds like some of the staff meetings I used to have to go to. <laughs> uh, PA days or oh, PD God. days? Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I'll, uh, that happens across industries. Like, you know, our, our friend Andrew t- told me a story. I shouldn't, we won't say any more about who he is or his name, but he's, he's described some, some kind of morale building meetings that he's been to where they make them sing pop songs and stuff. Um, and they were kind of horrified by the whole thing. Uh, so as we come to the end of the Mandarin period, so the, ni- the 19th century, the Mandarins actually became the scapegoats um, for defeats by colonialism. So when China, uh, I mean, when, yeah, when China was kind of like undermined by J- both Japan and the West in the mid 19th century, and we'll get into this a lot with colonialism, but um, and Japanese uh, there were reformers uh, trying to make sense of this, and they argued that um, they suddenly, I mean, I, you know, I think probably unfairly, they were looking for reasons, and they argued that the Mandarins were keeping the people stupid. Um, the truth is, you know, the Mandarins had their own, had critiques of their own systems that were actually much more uh, nuanced and, and better informed. But, you know, it makes sense if, if your kind of society is battered by colonialism that you would... Uh, you would look to the more obvious institutions that were having those problems. So uh, at the end of the book, at the end of Woodside's book, he also talks about how, you know, modern management theory actually has a lot in common with, uh, with these Mandarin bureaucratic guidelines. And, you know, he argues that it's not coincidental that, you'll find these business books that use Sun Tzu, you know, the art of war and your business or Confucius and your business. Right. Um, so I guess the, the point being that Mandarin and bureaucratic debates are, have been around for many hundreds of years and they are not going anywhere anytime soon. Can we touch on, touch on the idea of standardized testing? Absolutely. Uh, it, it's definitely the norm in Ontario now. I don't want to speak for all other jurisdictions, but it's certainly very big in Ontario now. Um, there's just one problem with standardized tests. They're basically doing the same thing as IQ tests. And that is, well, we already know that IQ is not the same as intelligence. Uh, otherwise, the Mensa Club would be running everything. <laughs> the thing is, if you have a high Q, a high IQ, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are the most intelligent. What it means is that you're really, really good at taking IQ tests. At that test, exactly. That's the only thing a test can measure is the specific skills on that test. Right, right. So I wish we knew more about what the Mandarin exam really, you know, consisted of it would be really fascinating to see what the questions were there's Uh, like eight there's like an a form you know an eight paragraph essay on some moral question or or bureaucratic question yeah and yeah but i don't know i haven't seen a a translated mandarin exam that would be pretty cool and as a historian obviously i have no trouble with them studying history i mean it it makes sense if you have a flood in your district rather than running around trying to innovate, why don't you look at what the last governor did when there was a flood and yeah. and whether it worked or not? Yeah. 
so yeah, there are limits to what standardized testings can can do for you. And uh, <laughs> well, yeah, and also like there's many pedagogical problems, right? Like the whole idea of teaching to the test. Like once you have these standardized tests, you end up losing any ability to create to do anything creative to follow your curio- curiosity. Um, there's a there's an education theorist that I found. Um, that I've found really, really good. His name's Gordon Neufeld. And he, I watched this video of his called Power to Teach. And he identifies like three, um, three different pedagogies. One is what he calls, um, I don't remember. One of them is like where you let the student follow their curiosity wherever it leads. I think it's called Emergent. And then there's another one where he calls it integrative, which is like debates where you you create a dialectic, like there's one side of the debate, the other side of the debate, and they create their own synthesis. And then there's adaptive where you correct their mistakes and then they they find out something isn't working and they they keep trying until something works. But then he says none of these work um, if the student isn't motivated. And then he talks about like why students might be motivated or not. And I, I'd also say that none of these work if you're just teaching to a test because you can't, you really can't do any of these if all, if the point is just to score on some standardized test. Yeah, yeah, and there's also the uh, the whole question of who has influence on the makeup of the test. Um, there's been a lot of consultation with uh, corporations. Yeah, you know, private. What- what kind of future yeah. employees do you want us to produce as if the school was a factory turning out, you know, trained employees for their, their needs. And the corporation said, well, we want people who can work in groups. So all of a sudden teachers had to come up with activities that the students could do in groups. And then you talk to the students and find out that quite a few of them hate group work <laughs> because the teacher keeps sticking them in a group with classmates who aren't going to do anything so you have you know a group of five where you have one person doing 80 percent of the work and another person doing 15 percent (laughs) and you get the idea five uh, no three percent two percent one percent half of a percent um but they and then i mean what what employers really want is terrified um workers who are never going to unionize and so because they can't say that it's a little bit like you know how do you produce that kind of person alienated bored to death feeling superfluous feeling like you know anything they get is out of the generosity of somebody else's yeah largesse or whatever yeah or the corporations say, we really want, you know, aggressive go-getters, people who are problem solvers and, okay. So Psych- you, psychopaths, yeah. Well, no, not necessarily. I imagine a, a, uh, somebody who's a go-getter, but, you know, so let's say relatively stable. Uh, so you get out of university, you go to work for a big company, and what job do they give you to do? Uh, sorting mail or? You're going to have a bullshit job. They're not going to give you a serious problem to handle. That's what the senior people are for. So after two or three years of doing these Joe jobs, you're going to realize I have one of those bullshit jobs. And I guess the test is, can you stick it out and prove your loyalty by doing these totally unnecessary things? 
Yeah, exactly. Well, in I remember in uh, reading an essay about like how to become a journalist, and and the uh, the writer was saying there when you if you try to go that kind of traditional route, get a job in a newsroom or whatever, which I don't even think is available anymore. This is twenty years ago or something. Mm-hmm. But he was saying they're going to get you to do stories you're not interested in, um, and. He, he just kind of asks rhetorically, like, do you really think that five years into doing stuff you're not interested in, you're going to be the same person that wanted to do these other things? Like, you should Bursting with probably, enthusiasm? Yeah. You should yeah. probably start the way you want to go on. Um, but yeah, like, th- there's, with, there's still more problems with standardized tests because... Um, they are also an instrument of discipline and punishment of teachers, right? Like in the States, they get these tests uh, and the tests are basically like if your school, if your students don't do well on the test, then you as a teacher will lose your job. So it's actually the pressure is squarely on principals and vice principals. Right. So the superintendents collect the data. So the province publishes not only how many students passed the standardized exam but they break it down by school so now parents you can see the score of the school where you were thinking of sending your children and once you realize oh my god that school their scores are terrible (laughs) so i don't want to send my kids there i'm going to send them you know over to this other school that has a better well, okay, but what's the score really reflecting? Is it a multicultural school with, you know, 30% of the students are recent immigrants? Mm-hmm. Is it a reflection of how well the, you know, the school teaches or just how well the school prepares them for the exam? Yeah, and the the greatest correlation is always privilege and income. Um, everywhere so the wealthier the district the higher the test scores and so like you're not going to be able to change that by any all the all your teaching methods are gonna are a noise factor compared to the role of income well but the the superintendent's under pressure from the director of the board so they're now going to pile the pressure on the principal and say you have to bring your scores up so the principal will now pile the pressure on the teachers and say you guys have to well, spend and, more time on bullshit and less time on teaching well the teachers already know we've been teaching you know we've been teaching to the exam for 10 years yeah. like what what more do you want cancel regular classes and just do the exam every day yeah i had a question for you about the manner system i don't know if you if you know the answer or whether we can just make an educated guess Uh, I was thinking in the context of the uh, college admission scandal in the United States, I find it hard to believe that the Mandarin system was flawless. I'm I'm just wondering if there was corruption at any level. I, I don't know, but I do know that there were military patrols of the exams. And so I know that this question was very much on their minds and their uh, they did take levels of precaution to secure the tests um, that are beyond what even some of the more rigorous uh, testing organizations do today. 
Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they, and the, the security was on the grading side as opposed to the, um, you know, I don't know how to put it, like the student side. Like they're not watching the students for cheating as much as they're trying to ensure everyone that the person grading is grading fairly. Right. Which is, uh, again, like the power relationship is interesting, right? Because like uh, in the university, in the today's university bureaucracy, it's all about like ensuring the students are not cheating, right? We don't prove to the students that we're not showing favoritism. <laughs> the students have to prove to us that they're not cheating the system. Right. And they don't, right? Like they don't believe in the system. Like increasingly they don't believe in the system because at the end of the Mandarin exa exam, you get a job and universities are telling students, you know, on the one hand, come and you'll learn things and it'll be great. We can't guarantee you a job or a credential or anything that's of any value, but um, it's going to be a great experience. Also, really, there's no there's nothing for you. You're going to probably have to, you know, become an entrepreneur of some kind at the end and make your own opportunities. And so it, there's a lot of contradictory messaging that universities are putting out that I think, unfortunately, like, not unfortunately, but for better or worse, students are understanding. The the question of uh, what period this is when it comes to China. Because in Western history, we have, you know, these neat little divisions between ancient and, and medieval history and then modern. And in the, yeah. you know, the introduction we talked about, you know, defining the word modern is showing your bias. But this... This relatively China. short period in China, only from like about 1200 years ish. So, <laughs> yeah. Seventh, seventh century in China, eighth century in Korea, 11th century in Vietnam. Which basically would be the Dark Ages in Europe and then the, the Middle Ages and into the, well into the modern era. Mm -hmm.